We're going to pause on three separate occasions during the service today, uh, just like this. Um, first, now I'm going to talk about the atmosphere or the context. Um, next, uh, we're going to talk about the prophecy itself uh, that, that's listed in there, that the virgin would conceive uh, and give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to talk about uh, the example of Joseph in the story, uh, who is fearful and faithful in all the right ways. So first of all, the atmosphere. Uh, because people often talk um, about the magic of the Christmas season, don't they? That's a word that uh, pops up in, uh, you know, on ads, um, in, uh, in movies. Uh, it's absolutely the stuff of kids' movies and Santa Claus mostly. Uh, but the birth narratives, as they appear in the Bible about Jesus, um, they do possess this kind of mystical, magical quality. There is a mystery uh, and a romance that's embedded in the stories. Uh, but it, 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 it appears in a bunch of different ways, but it's more than, say, for example, just the sweet and sentimental stuff of a newborn baby. You know, there's, there's something magical about a new child, um, but the magic of the Christmas story is more than that. Uh, it's even more than the rustic romance of a promised king that is laid in a manger at his birth. Uh, it's more, uh, the magic is more than the, uh, the exotic appeal of shepherds side by side with wise men or magi around the crib. Um, the substance of the, the magic or the aura or the atmosphere, if you like, uh, is that God has made himself one of us. That is the mystery, that God has become flesh. Uh, Jesus the baby in the manger, is God in human form. And so through his experience, uh, God can know us and sympathise with us fully and make atonement for our sins. He can substitute himself for us because he is one of us. He became one of us. But also through Jesus, we can also know God. We can truly see and know God our Father. So that's the substance uh, that comes through in, in this aura and atmosphere and magic of the season. Uh, so we, we talk, though, about this atmosphere because uh, the magical aesthetic um, of Christmas is probably best captured in the Bible by the appearance of angels, uh, which just comes up again and again. Uh, the appearance of the angels points us to the substance, uh, that is Christ our Saviour, but in all of the stories about Jesus' birth, if you measure word for word, angels actually feature more heavily, more frequently than Jesus himself. They're the main characters in the story. Or they are, they're the main players, even if Jesus is the point. In today's reading, there's just one instance. There's an angel that appears to Joseph in a dream. But when we place all the Christmas stories together, we have also an angel appearing to Zechariah to foretell the birth of John the Baptist, who would in turn foretell the coming of Jesus. Uh, then, right after that, the same angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary to say that she will bear Jesus. And then on the night of the first Christmas, an angel gives the first birth announcement to shepherds in the fields. And then that one angel is joined for a moment by the whole army of heavenly angels and then tomorrow, on Christmas Day, we'll read together uh, from Matthew chapter 2, how an angel appears to the Magi, or the wise men, 
Uh, and, then an, and then again, an angel appears to Joseph in another dream to tell him to flee with his young family to Egypt. And then a, an angel appears to Joseph again in another dream to tell him when it's safe to come back. There, is, there are angels everywhere in this story. And even by biblical standards, this is an absolute glut of angels. I don't think I've missed any uh, within this story, but that's seven right there. Uh, so, what does the atmosphere itself, just this, this glut and stream of angels, teach us, uh, or at least lead us to expect uh, in this story? So, in the Bible, angels mean uh, one or sometimes a few of three different things. Three things, different things, but they're overlapping things as well. So, the first thing that angels mean um, is pretty obvious. They are messengers, That's exactly how they appear in every one of these Christmas stories. They come with a message, either of a birth to come or a birth that's happened or uh, a message of danger and how to to avoid it. Uh, So that's what we get. The angels are doing a lot of talking, arguably a bit of singing. Uh, They are messengers. And what we can learn uh, from context and inference um, that angels are messengers the ancients understood by language and definition. Here's what I mean. Um, The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And in both those languages, the word angel literally means messenger. In fact, it's just the same word. Uh, The same word that you would use for a messenger who's come from a king or someone you've sent on an errand to the shops or a messenger who's come from heaven, it's the same word. It's just context that tells you which one of those things it is. And I reckon it is a tiny shame, it's not a big deal, but it is a tiny shame that we don't do the same thing in English. Because I think for us, the fact that we have a separate word for heavenly messengers, and we call them angels, I reckon that can make us um, think of the entity itself. It can sort of produce this fascination with angels as if they are the point, they are the characters. Whereas the word messenger, I think, has built into it the understanding that, uh, that the, the entity, the person, isn't the point, it's the message, it's the, it's the one they've come from. Uh, and so our focus then should be on the messenger's message more than the appearance or whatever of the angel themselves. So an angel is first and foremost a messenger, a line of communication from God to mankind. The second thing that angels typically mean in the Bible is salvation. Uh, This is connected to the first thing because often they're they're bringing a message of salvation. Um, but, um, But sometimes angels are more than just messengers of salvation, they are agents of salvation. Uh, it's not uncommon in the biblical stories that an angel um, actually produces salvation. So it's an angel, for instance, that leads the Israelites out of Egypt for the first time um, and then into the promised land. Uh, In the New Testament, an angel leads the apostle Peter out of his prison cell. And on one occasion in the Old Testament, angels even destroy a whole enemy army. So they're agents of salvation. And then the third thing, so they're messengers... Uh, they mean salvation. The third significance of angels uh, is that they can also sometimes mean destruction. And that obviously overlaps with salvation because sometimes they're destroying enemies, but sometimes they also destroy swathes of the Israelite people who have turned away from God. That's how angels occasionally appear in the Old Testament, uh, in an act of judgment. 
And so when angels appear, especially in just a rush like this, we should be thinking, we're certainly seeing messages, but are we, is God coming in salvation or judgment at this point? And that, by the way, is part of why, uh, is part of what's so awe-inspiring about the occasion in Luke chapter 2, when the host of angels appear to the shepherds in the fields, because the plains are filled with an army of God's angels, and their presence could easily mean war and judgment and destruction, but instead they declare peace on earth. Amazing stuff. Uh, Let me close this section with just a short story. Uh, On Thursday night of this week, we uh, had the grand plan, our family, to go looking at Christmas lights uh, with our kids. And right after we got on in the car on Thursday night, do you remember what happened on Thursday night? It started to rain and there was a storm. And so as we were driving around, people were switching their lights off uh, rather than on. Um, And we didn't get the show that we were banking on. But for a bit, we did stop the car to look at the light display in the sky. Uh, because the clouds were crackling with lightning overhead. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I know we certainly I'm not alone. Who hasn't been captivated by just the awesomeness of a good lightning show? Now, of course, we've all heard in school something um, that's to me is still mysterious about electrical charges building up somewhere that balance out with zaps of electric current between the clouds and the earth, something like that. But even having heard the scientific explanation, there's something about a good thunderstorm that just makes you want to worship, that makes you want to pause and take it all in. Uh, And you can see why the ancient people might have been terrified by these goings-on in heavens when thunder and lightning was going off. It's not much of a stretch to imagine that... um, Uh, that for an ancient person, they might have been looking at the skies and thinking, gee, the film that separates heaven from earth has split for a moment and that light is is heaven itself shining through or, or something like it. Well, that, if you can imagine it, is something like what's happening when the angels start appearing all over the place in these early stories about Jesus' birth. It's as if earth's atmosphere has been breached and God is speaking. In dazzling, heavenly light, God is declaring his message and thank God that in Christ it's a message of salvation and not judgment. Uh, So I want to talk for a moment about uh, the prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew says is fulfilled in Jesus' birth. Uh, That prophecy that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew then goes on to spell out for us, means God with us. Uh, If you've engaged very much with some of the arguments against Christianity, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus is one of the most common things to attack. Uh, And uh, and it's pretty low-hanging fruit, because, of course, a virgin birth is impossible. Uh, And, of course, Christians agree that under normal circumstances, a virgin birth is impossible, except that we accept uh, that its impossibility is the thing that makes it a miracle, the thing, that, uh, the, the thing that insists that this is God's work and not the work of mankind. Uh, but one of the arguments against it all goes like this. Those silly Christians, don't they know that the Hebrew word for virgin in the original prophecy can mean either literal virgin or simply young woman. 
the prophecy doesn't even predict a miraculous birth and those silly Christians have backed themselves into an impossible corner by insisting on an impossible thing that the prophecy itself never even insisted on. Has anyone heard that sort of argument before? Um, I've come across it. The truth is, the Hebrew word for virgin in that original prophecy could mean either woman who has never been with a man or young woman in general. So let's come back to that and look at the context in Isaiah. So we're going to go back several hundred years before the time of Jesus to look at when the prophecy itself is given. Uh, The prophecy happens in a conversation between the Lord and Ahaz. This is the reading that, um, that Matt just brought to us. Uh, Ahaz was the king of Judah, which was uh, the southern kingdom of Israel. And the conversation is probably mediated through the prophet Isaiah, who wrote it all down. And the conversation goes like this. God says to King Ahaz, who, by the way, is a wicked king, God says, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz refuses. Uh, and, he, and he dresses up his refusal with, uh, with some kind of, uh, like a pretense of being uh, righteous and good. Uh, he says, I will not put the Lord to the test. It's interesting, Jesus says something like that in his own life. And so, it sounds kind of honourable, doesn't it? I won't put the Lord to the test. Except that God had asked Ahaz to put him to the test and to ask him for a sign. And so Ahaz should have done it. His refusal... To, to ask for a sign is actually an example of a lack of faith that he won't even ask God for a thing that God tells him he can ask for. Uh, but God says, if you won't ask, I'll do it anyway. I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, biblical prophecy is a tricky thing. It really is a pretty tricky thing. Many times it can only be properly understood retrospectively. So looking back and then going, ah, I see how that has all fitted in. It's very difficult to look at a prophecy on itself and predict and map out exactly how it's going to play out in the future, in most cases. Um, And so it's often only after something occurs that you can look back and go, oh, this is what God promised and this is how it turned out. So there's a heap of directions that this original prophecy could have actually gone. So it could have been that a literal virgin would conceive, though it could have been simply that a woman would conceive in the natural way and the point of the prophecy lies somewhere else in the prophecy. And in fact, I think that's probably the most natural way to read it in its original context. Because it's not an unusual thing in that language to have said a virgin will conceive. That's a normal natural thing that a young woman would have a baby. It could have been even that the son would be named Emmanuel, you know, on the birth certificate named Emmanuel, or it could simply mean that the name would be symbolic. Uh, The fact that the name Emmanuel means God with us could mean that the baby would be God himself in the flesh, but it could be just simply that uh, that, uh, that this child's life would be symbolic of God's presence. And in fact, in the original context, that's probably the most natural way to read it, that something about this child's birth and life is going to teach us something about God and his attention. At a stretch, in the original context, it could even possibly be read to mean that, uh, that even a son might not be born at all, 
but simply God would demonstrate his presence in some other amazing way and he was using the language sort of like a metaphor of a child coming and, and bringing that. Maybe, that's more of a stretch, but possibly. That's how tricky it sometimes is to tease out prophecies from their beginning forward. So in the immediate context of the book of Isaiah, the most reasonable expectation, I think, is that a young woman would bear a son in a normal way and that this child would have a name that's probably not Emmanuel, but, uh, but would lead a life that in some way would bear witness to God's presence. And probably through the course of the Old Testament and onwards, that happened many times. Um, you could look back and say that's happened many times. And actually, though, that's, it, it is what happens. So the prophecy is given in Isaiah chapter 7, and then if you turn the page in your Bible over to chapter 8, the, prophes- the prophet Isaiah goes to his wife who conceives and bears a son in the natural way. And they give him a name, but it's not Emmanuel. They name him, they name him I'll see if I can do this out loud, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, which means something like quickly to the plunder. Uh, beautiful name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And before he is old enough to speak, God acts in judgment against Israel. So winding back several hundred years before Jesus, the most obvious interpretation is that the essence of the prophecy that a woman would conceive in the natural way and have a son who would, in the course of his life or somehow in his birth, um, demonstrate God's coming, um, that it's already happened by Isaiah chapter 8, that the prophet's wife, a young woman, has born a child in the natural way. He's got a name that's not Emmanuel exactly, but his life, by, by the time, before he can even speak, God has acted in judgment. His presence has been made known. The prophecy is already fulfilled. And that's probably how most people understood it as, as they read it. They weren't waiting for another virgin to come along and do this. So why on earth would Matthew bring it up now in the context of Jesus' birth? It's because Jesus was born of a virgin. He just was. And it's only knowing that fact that later on you read Isaiah chapter 7 and go, oh, gee, we thought it came came true in chapter 8. But it's come even more true in a surprising way that no one would have predicted in the life of Jesus. Although the original prophecy was already essentially fulfilled hundreds of years before, it was fully fulfilled in Jesus like every little bit that you could possibly read into that old prophecy if you're stretching it to you know within an inch of its own life Jesus made come true all the elements of the prophecy that may have been merely symbolic and that were never even anticipated in a person's wildest dreams upon reflection in Jesus They came true. No one ever guessed that a literal virgin would conceive and give birth, but Mary did. No one ever guessed that the child, no one ever guessed that the child would literally be God in the flesh, God with us. That was not on the radar, but he was. That's what we are taught in the life of Jesus. So in a few weeks, uh, because... We're starting from Matthew chapter 1 and as a church we're going to walk through Matthew until at least the end of chapter 7, come around Easter time. Um, So in a few weeks we're going to come to Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says at the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, you may have heard of it, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfil them. 
So Jesus is the true fulfilment of the scriptures. So in your Bible, all this bulk of the Bible before Jesus, it, it points towards him. Not in a way that anyone could have minutely mapped the details of his life before he was born. It's not that simple. But in such a complete way that with a good knowledge of the Old Testament, you can't help but read the New Testament with just light bulbs going off. And that's how the New Testament is written uh, by these authors who had light bulbs going off. Matthew going, oh wow, the Virgin really did conceive. And Jesus really is God with us. Uh, Reflecting on the life of Joseph now, uh, the fearful and faithful. So we'll close with just a short reflection about Joseph. There's not many people in the Bible uh, who get a sparkling clean record. Uh, Even the greatest heroes have a good bit of mud that sticks to their character. King David is one of them. Uh, Abraham is another. Uh, Pretty much all of them come out looking a bit yucky in the end, even if they've done a handful of really great things. The Bible is really painfully and refreshingly honest about human character like that. But there's a few good guys in there, and Joseph is one of them. Now, I'm not saying Joseph's perfect. We, we know just so few details about his life. But Joseph is one of the few guys uh, that gets a really good summary. Um, uh, this story is by far the most we learn about the man. Uh, his details don't appear very much anywhere else. Uh, and we're lucky to have even a single sentence summary of his character. And it was there in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, Joseph was a just man. And just uh, also means righteous. Uh, It means a kind of man who tried to do what God wanted him to do. And to give that as a summary, that he was righteous, as I say, doesn't mean uh, that he was perfect, but it means at least uh, that he was known as one of the good guys. But it also says this, right after it says that he was a just man or a righteous man, a man who followed the law and did what was right... It also says that he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. And so we see in this that although there's a simple enough summary of the guy's character, Joseph is a man with layers. He's not just a black and white guy. There's layers to his character. There's riches and depth. So given the option to divorce the woman who brought scandal to his house, he decided to do what he was justified in doing but he decided to do it in the most discreet possible way, which he didn't have to do. He could have done it in the most public possible way, but he did it in the most discreet possible way so as to avoid shame where possible for Mary. Uh, In situations of adultery, the Bible gives us the options of divorce or persistence. Um, And this this is sort of what what the situation appears to be, that Joseph is engaged to be married to someone who seems to have played up. And so the Bible gives us the choice. You divorce the person or you persist with the person. But divorce, I'll say this, divorce is never given as the second best option in the scenario, as if the more righteous person would simply forgive. Okay? In cases of adultery, divorce is always justified. It's not second best. It is absolutely allowed. 
And if I were to ever learn that someone in my church was wronged by adultery, I will stand by you if you choose to divorce the person who has betrayed you. And I will stand beside you if you choose to forgive and persist with the person who betrayed you. Neither of those are easier or better or second best. I will add, forgiveness is always necessary, whichever way you choose to proceed with the marriage. Forgiveness is always necessary, but that doesn't mean you have to stay married to an unfaithful person, but it does mean you must still forgive the person that you may be compelled to divorce. Uh, Most people, in a similar situation to what Joseph finds himself in, maybe even especially the people with a, who already have an otherwise unmarked record, you know, they've got a good reputation, people know you and like you and respect you and honour you. Most people, like Joseph, might tend to do the divorce in the most public way possible to make sure that the mud sticks on the other party and not themselves. You know, you share the details widely so that everyone knows the story and everyone is left at least crystal clear that you're not at fault. That would be the temptation, I think. Because, of course, the other interpretation of what's happened could have been, from this is just from eyes looking in, could be that Joseph had both gotten Mary pregnant and abandoned her with his child. People could draw that conclusion if they want. We can't control these things. But nevertheless, Joseph demonstrated his forgiveness towards Mary by proceeding respectfully and quietly for her sake. So we have a guy who stands on principle but not in such a hardened and inflexible way that he's unwilling to show grace. That's really important, Uh, really quite rare. Joseph is truly one of the good guys. He's got strength with kindness. He's got principle with grace. But then, for Joseph, in his sleep, an angel presents him with a story that is simply impossible to believe, that the pregnancy is the product of a miracle, the child is God's own son. And then the angel tells him to, instead of distancing himself from the shame of the apparent scenario, uh, to draw close instead. Instead of separating, come closer. To embrace this woman of disrepute and to embrace a future of whispers and suggestions that he can't control and he doesn't even try to control. He deals with it all, I presume, with the same quietness and respect and humility that he would have uh, proceeded with the divorce if he had have gone that way. I just find in this such a powerful uh, example and inspiration of holiness in a world of sin and muck and complicated scenarios. A guy who is clear enough on what's black and white to know what's right and wrong, but also clear enough about things like grace and mercy and respect and love to go about his life in the gentlest and most humble way possible. What an inspiration to us of what it is to be holy in a world of sin. What an inspiration and model to Jesus as well. See, Jesus was known for mixing with disreputable women. He looked out for them. He cared for them. He was associated with them. And mud stuck to Jesus because of it. And people liked to remind him of it. They held that against him. 
Or maybe Jesus, through his own family upbringing, learned better than anyone that there's often more to a story than meets the eye. Uh, And maybe that compelled him towards increasing levels of grace uh, to others, particularly people on the fringes. Wasn't Joseph just a fitting earthly father for the one who came and embodied justice, but also brought with him God's grace? Uh, What a great example of uh, fearing, because remember, Joseph Joseph feared to take Mary as his wife, because that's what the angel said, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Uh, What a great example of someone who in the end uh, chose to fear God and obey him more than fearing the whispers and whatnot of the people around him. What a great model of justice with grace. Um, And uh, what a great reminder for us uh, that life is tricky sometimes and that things are rarely as simple as black and white and even when uh, there is a clear right and a wrong, there are layers of righteousness and grace that we get to apply to these things uh, under God.